Anton, welcome back. So we've we've taken a couple of a uh, couple of weeks off here. You've been heads down sprinting on the release of Stable Attribution, which came out earlier this week to a ton of fanfare. The last I looked, there were six thousand something likes on the tweet. Obviously, a bit of controversy. Anything that gets popular on the internet does that as well, and particularly in in these kinds of areas. And we'll get into that. But how's it been? What is Stable Attribution? We've been teasing it for a while. Stable Attribution is something that Chroma, Jeff, and I started work on just before Christmas, where initially I had a lot of misconceptions about the, first of all, the objection of creators to, you know, stable diffusion to mid journey Dali. I I like honestly kind of didn't get it um, because I had certain assumptions around how these models were actually made, where the data came from. And then I looked into it in more depth and I started actually investigating it because I was like, well, something doesn't really square here started talking to people and it was pretty clear that their objection wasn't like, for most people at least, it wasn't like, oh, these models are like threatening my livelihood. They're going to replace me as an artist. It was more like, first of all, like a shocking development in their own right. I didn't know that this was possible. And I think that that's, you know, fairly standard. Most people had that reaction when Stable Diffusion and Dali yeah. and stuff came out. Yeah, right. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. And then to have that shock then doubled with like, wait a minute, you used like my art? to make this without really asking me, let alone, you know, for, forget even the compensation piece right now. You used my art without ever asking for my consent. And I definitely didn't put it up on the web for this purpose because nobody knew that it could be used for this purpose a few years ago when I put up my stuff. Made, made a lot of people like honestly, like shocked. And, and, and when you have like that double thing pile on, it makes people extremely defensive. Makes, it makes them think about what they stand to lose more than what they stand to gain. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And, you know, I was, I was following discourse and I thought to myself, okay, well, that's interesting. This is a question about how much can we attribute to the training data of latent diffusion models of which stable diffusion is a version like we talked about um, in a previous episode. And I thought, okay, well, what is the first approach that I would try here? And we basically started development on that track and we based our initial approaches off of publicly available open source software. We can get into details in a minute, but happy to answer more more sort of questions around what's going on and how things are. So you tried the first approach. Is that the one that you ended up going with? How have you refined it over time? What's like the final yeah. approach to stable attribution look like? So I don't think that we're anywhere near the final solution yet. There are ideas we've played with. Some of them are deployed in the public version. Uh, we find that because we're pretty compute limited, we can't really have all of them stood up all the time. But there's a lot that you can do with the internal structure of how diffusion models actually work. There's a lot of like other empirical research and questions to be run here. And there's been you know some papers recently that kind of demonstrate that these models, under what conditions these models actually reproduce their input. So I don't think we're anywhere close to it, but going from vanilla, like semantic search, um, in latent space, we basically tried to add more of what the model is actually doing on top of that idea of finding neighbors in this latent space. So we basically doing straight like similarity search in a given latent space is fine, but that latent, the structure of that latent space isn't actually imposed by the diffusion process. You need to take the diffusion process into account and you need to take the characteristics of the data set also into account. And so one of the very first things we did was to just look at duplication 
in the data set. Cool. So the, the original process was very, very straightforward. It was, you know, take a stable diffusion generated image, encode it using the same encoding scheme, look for neighbors in the training set, right? This is, this is like the basic first alpha idea, literally the first thing I could think of. And the reason that we chose to do that is because the training objective of latent diffusion models is to reconstruct the input latent or denoised versions at each time step of the input latent. So it's essentially saying, okay, given this, given the encoding of this image and the encoding of its caption conditioned on the encoding of its caption, reproduce the same latent representing that image. So, you know, to me, it kind of made sense. And because of the way that this latent space is structured because of the encoder decoder pair, things that are visually similar tend to be close together. That's part of the effect of contrastive training. And so the thinking was, okay, well, kind of analogously, the loss for the training objective of this model would be minimized if for every caption, it reproduced the corresponding image exactly every time. And so my kind of analogous thinking was, okay, well, if that were true, then we can say each generation of such a model would be as if it were an original data point in its latent space. But of course, those data points don't necessarily exist. So we say, okay, like where would that data point be? And that data point is like going to be weighted according to its neighbors. And, and, and I, I hesitate to say interpolate because what people are going to do is like, you're going to be like, haha, I caught you out. You say models interpolate, but they don't really do that. That's not really what I mean. All I'm saying is, is that the corresponding data point would be in latent space. And then we can say, okay, here are the neighbors that you, you know, would interpolate to it. And that's the starting point. And then we looked at, first of all, the fact that like, it's actually well known. There's plenty of literature around this that duplicates in data sets tend to weight generations more heavily to be more perceptually similar. They are one of the main drivers of like models being able to exactly reproduce images from their training set. Hmm. So we, you know, and, we take that something into like Lion. Are they trying hmm? to scrub duplicates out? Yeah, they have they have a project for that um, right now. Um, I think you know there, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of ways. I actually think that commercial deployments of latent diffusion models probably have already deduplicated their data sets hmm. because I think the like cost reward is is pretty good. Certainly, OpenAI with Dali, they even put out a it's not even a paper; it's a blog post called Dali Pre-Training Mitigations, uh, which explained how they deduplicated the data set because they found that it was regurgitating inputs. So you know, Lion really want a cleaner data set. They're they're working on it. So that's the first thing we looked at. So we say, okay, well, when a generation ends up in this region of latent space where there's tons of duplicates of the same image, we'll collapse those duplicates and just weight them accordingly. And then we'll look at what else is like nearby. And that's a start that like, you can imagine this is like starting to warp the latent space that we're actually doing the similarity search in. I, I think to like, for, for an idiot like me uh, and maybe people who aren't as deep in this, when you're like talking about seeing things kind of near each other in latent space and you're identifying mm -hmm. them like what's happening on your computer what are you looking at like what are you checking to make sure that this works or doesn't work like take us behind the scenes of that piece a little bit so there's a thing called a vector database or vector index running on our machine it has the encoding of the entire lion 5b data set inside it represented as the vectors for the images we also have encodings for some parts, like we don't have all the text captions from Lion 5B encoded. Uh, we, we just haven't run that yet because it, it needs GPU where it gets expensive. So we didn't do it. And what you do is you basically query that vector database 
and you ask it for, okay, give, you know, here's a new vector, which may or may not already be in here. Can you tell me what the nearest neighbors are? There's two kinds of nearest neighbor. There's, you know, K nearest neighbor, which is giving you exactly the K nearest neighbors, right? It does exactly what it says in the box. But the problem with that is even the best KNN algorithms, exact KNN algorithms scale linearly in the amount of data. So you can imagine like with 5 billion data points, you're in real trouble for every single query. Approximate nearest neighbor algorithms, of which there are a few, hierarchical nearest neighbor small world algorithms are like pretty state of the art. There's a bunch of stuff right now and there's increasing interest in this whole thing. Allow you to scale sublinearly. But it means that you won't get as, like the results you get back won't necessarily be accurate. So, you know, it gives you approximate nearest neighbor, but it means that you're able to query very large data sets like that. And what's the difference in um, cost between those two approaches? I mean, the trade-off is, is accuracy. The trade-off is recall. You'll miss some points if you use approximate nearest, approximate nearest neighbor, but you can tune for your specific data set and you can tune for your sort of query types as well. Got it. Yeah. So we, you know, we do that. We grab, we grab the neighbors that they tell us and we sort of take a look at, okay, well, what parts of the latents are actually important? Why do these look like, why do these seem like neighbors? And of course, you know, we look at the image, corresponding images and we say, okay, well, do these kind of look similar? Why, why might these look similar? And there's, there's this interesting problem and it's a global problem or it's a general problem in machine learning interpretability work, which is this, this is that, which is the models are pretty alien. Even if you're looking at something and it doesn't look at all the same, or it looks like pretty different to the model, those two things are very similar in some, in some very specific sense, because the latent space of the model is, you know, nice and, and continuous and you can pick any point in it and you can decode that point and you will get something back. But the manifold of like human interpretability, which is like basically where this, this like surface where all the points should sit is different to the one that the model comes up with. And so things that a human might not say are the same or similar of the model will as well. But that's, that's, that's like a, a common problem interpretability. The model just perceives the world differently to you do, to how you do, because it's focused on different things. You've asked it to focus on different things. Classic problem. So yeah, that was our starting point. Just, just doing that. And again, we, we just used off the shelf open source software. We made sure that it ran like in our little cluster, we made sure that we could like query it remotely so that we could work on it as a team instead of just each of us having to have it on our individual machines, you know, route queries, see what we were getting, automate a large part of this. Uh, we built a bunch of infrastructure out around it, uh, which we, you know, hope to open source because it's pretty useful if you want to host one of these uh, in the future. So, you know, we've got ways to like spin this up in a cluster now as opposed to just downloading the repo as it exists today and running it on your machine. Yeah, so that was the first step. We looked at like weighting stuff by duplicates uh, to simplify the process. The other thing we noticed really early on and a bunch of papers kind of cons confirmed this idea is a lot of the time the encoded representation of the image differs from the encoded representation of its caption. And of course, you know, uh, as a technicality, the encoding of images that the models uses are not, this is not the same space as the encoding that of its text, that's because there's an additional projection step where they go to the same latent space. That's not actually what's happening in latent diffusion models, but to close approximation, this is an interesting thing to note. A lot of the time, there's actually quite big divergence between the, the image vector and the, 
and the text vector, despite the fact that the, the encoding decoder model is this contrastively trained language image model, they should be as close as possible together. A lot of the time, they're pretty divergent. And we found that really interesting. And so we computed that divergence for a subset, you know, what we found to be the most relevant subset, which was you know, things with, with a relatively high aesthetic score, computed across that subset. And we thought, OK, this is also an interesting way to weight things. We should, you know, we should take a look and see how the results change. And we, like the, the sort of trade-off we kind of intuitively make here is data points where the image and caption end up being very similar in their embedding are going to tell the model about specific things. And things that differ strongly from their caption and image help the model to generalize. And it's you know, being treated almost like noise. And so because we wanted with the attribution algorithm to be able to say, OK, this, these images contributed in some sense, and we'll get to exactly what attribution and contribution means in a bit, we weighted things by that difference when it was available to us, when we had it computed. And that's all well and good. And is that difference, uh, is there a way to, to think about that in plain English, which is like yeah. the image, you know, if you like take it back out from latent space, the image is a picture of a cat holding a purple ball sitting on a couch. Mm. And the text is a cat sitting on a chair holding a red ball, like, but they should be similar or can you not yeah, really translate a lot of to reasons. human? There's a lot of reasons that happen. One of the reasons is the data set itself is noisy. So often the caption just simply doesn't match the image as an example you gave there. But yeah. the, the mismatch is actually a lot worse than, than the one you just described. Like it might just be cool, awesome picture, something, something, something with, with no reference to what's actually in the image itself, right? Yeah. It's actually much worse than what you described. And so the idea is like when, when they're matching really well, that's going to help the model to be to reproduce you know more specifically whereas if they're really not matching that's not going to help the model generalize instead it's going to be able to think about like broad ideas in in the space of images unassociated to text necess necessarily and can learn like all kinds of structures that way it's a hypothesis we haven't tested it rigorously yet but we would like to so we waited by like those differences and images with better matching clip vectors are weighted more highly and that's what we can do with the static data set. That's all stuff we could pre-compute. So that's, that was nice. And the thing is, is like at every step of the way, we still get pretty unusual results. We get results that are perceptually strange to humans quite frequently, relatively frequently. But to the model, the, the principle, like the similarity principle does apply. The next thing we did was like look at what we could do with the, like the live model itself. And so we knew we would be getting these images after the fact. So, you know, we couldn't look into the model while they were being generated, but there are things you can do to figure out, to like basically recreate the generation process for an input image. This process is called direct image text inversion, but it requires you to have the caption, which again, we, or a caption or a prompt in the case of generated images, we knew we wouldn't be able to get those most of the time. So because we wanted to see what the model does for a generated image, these are, by the way, the more highly experimental features, which go up and down all the time. This this thing is held together by like tape and, and shoestrings and, and wood glue. So what we do is we create a caption. And from the papers that show, you know, like duplication of the training set, we actually actually found that like the, the, the like associated caption, the model generated caption is more likely to recreate the image than than like the actual data set caption for that image. 
which is interesting, interesting effect. Also not quite sure what it means. Um, worth, worth more investigation in my opinion. Generate a caption, you know, do this direct text image inversion, get the latent back, and then we can run the diffusion process forward again to see what specifically the attention mechanisms are doing at each step. And then using what the attention mechanism is doing, we can make a thing called an attention map. And what an attention map is, is basically a weighting over the latent vector that the model generates. And it says, these parts of the latent vector are more important for what I generated. These are less important for what I generated. These are like, these are the things that come from generalization. And these are the things that come specifically because I'm trying to fit the prompt uh, is a way of looking at them. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and what a weighting on a vector is like, it's, it's a, it's basically what's called a affine transform. You, you like rotate and stretch the vector and, and yeah, you rotate and stretch the vector. And so that also allowed us to be like, okay, well, this is an additional computation we can apply to find things that are relevant to what the model generated. So like now, instead of computing the raw distances, what we're going to do is we're going to grab way more neighbors and then we are going to transform that latent space using the affine transform that we got from the attention map. And then we're going to compute distances and then we're going to weight the distances by the stuff we pre-computed from the training set. So yeah, that's, that's the entire approach. Now, before we get to objection, cause we're going to, we're going to go to a lot of objections, but. Oh yeah. So in that process, the output, if you go to the website is seven, 10, however many images that you know pop up once you drag and drop your image in is that the ones that have the highest weights or like like what is the final selection and like the cutoff yeah. on on how on which ones you're including which ones you aren't yeah. i mean we ultimately we return a finite set of the best results and the ones that are closest in our new distance metric are the ones that we return as, as higher and again like you get unusual results because all these different steps are things that the model perceives not things that humans perceive necessarily directly. And when you get down to like individual contributing elements, this becomes pretty obvious a lot of the time. And it's, it's interesting because I've, I've done a bunch of these now and hmm. you can't in most of them, there's not one where it's like, oh yeah, like that's the one that it's like really, really looks like when maybe there's different pieces from a bunch of it and there's like the hmm. nose here or the color hmm. and you know, that that's probably too human readable, but Oh, I think that's good. Yeah. So there's like clearly a bunch of pieces, but like it doesn't look like you just, you know, cut out. It's not like a mosaic yeah. where you just cut out like a no, bunch of different not. pieces. Like it sometimes you're like, wow, it did, it made some leaps here to kind of get to this final image from yeah. the set that we, that that's we have right. there. When you're talking about the model kind of picking up different things than, than a human mm. would, is that, even like things that we have language to describe or like that a normal art history major would yeah. understand like shading or, or is it like totally different? I would suggest that for this approach, it's basically totally different and very difficult to make it human interpretable, but it does suggest the possibility of creating a model, which does pull in influences in a way that a human would, which are more interpretable. There's probably a possibility to do that here. Diffusion is like this great little process because it's a dynamic process. And you can like step in and change what the model is doing at every step of that process. And things like, you know, things like cross-attention guidance do exactly that. Like it recomputes the attention maps instead of the ones the model generates it's on its own. It's like, no, stick this and reweight it um, the way you want. And so that gives the possibility of like making generations much more human interpretable. 
uh, and also like making the space of encoded stuff um, more human interpretable or, or possible approaches in the future. What we're seeing now again is like, this is what the model sees for the approach that we're attempting to do. Got it. So now, now we can get to the, the fun part. So as happens on the internet, I, I think the first like 50 quote tweets that I saw on your original tweet about this were like all positive and this is amazing and kind of the things that we had talked about before, which is wanting to give artists credit for the work that they've done. I think people picked up mm. on, on the fact that this is an important step towards that. And then because mm. it's the internet, you know, the comments, either replies or quote tweets or blog posts or whatever started coming through and picking apart either, you know, the technical approach. I know, you know some people called you a liar. Like what were people yeah. upset about and, and kind of what even did that feel like? Yeah, let me get to the technical objections first. So I think people assume that I was or we were presenting this approach as the be all and end all, which it's not. This is an attempt. This is an attempt to demonstrate that this is a technically tractable problem. Now, we do know that there are, in principle, more optimal approaches for credit assignment for elements of a model's training set, right? And the way to really do this, if you had infinite compute and however much time you wanted for each of these, would be something like generate your image and then make sure that you had like the random seed and the caption, and then basically do what's called leave one out, which is retrain the model, leaving out the, you know, starting in like the closest things to latent space, leave that out, leave that out, leave that out, keep leaving stuff out until the generated image you got from this constantly iteratively retrained model differed sufficiently much under some sufficiently metric of sufficiently much. And this is why this is all human interpretable in the end, or, or like, like socially determined in the end, like what attribution actually means is not a technical question, but you can use technology to help understand what you should do. And so, but this, this is obviously intractable because it would involve retraining stable diffusion thousands of times for, to like figure out attribution for every single generation. I, I was going to say, um, is this something that like open AI or stability AI has enough GPUs to, to do, or like it, there's not enough GPUs in the universe right now to do something like this? I think there are enough GPUs on earth to like try to do this, but I don't think it's like economically reasonable to do it. Yeah. And certainly like, it depends on the rate at which you want to be able to do this. This takes a long time. Like you literally have to retrain the model the same way you trained it in the first place. Every time you have to recreate it exactly, except missing this element from its data set. And then you say, okay, well, this is like how the, how much the image keeps changing from the thing they originally generated. So you can say, this is the contribution to the actual generation. And then there's the argument. Okay. Well, it's like, it changed, but it changed into something else. Like, does that mean this has less attribution to those things? What does it actually mean? So it's, it's like, even this is technically feasible, but even this has arguments against its validity as, uh, as an approach to assigning attribution. And we figured like doing something's better than doing nothing. I think an interesting investigation here would be to play with this in a toy model setting where actually retraining it like many, many times is not as computationally expensive. And I think that actually, if we could collect, if we could collect global information about how, about people fine tuning stable diffusion models, that's a very similar thing, basically. Like every, every time someone does a dream booth or something like that, if we could actually collect that information and watch the diffusion process, that would be really great research data. Uh, but I don't think anyone's recording that right now. So yeah, so like there's, there's better approaches. Our approach is fundamentally limited. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our approach takes into account 
the model's training objective, which is to minimize the distance between the encodings of the generated image and the training image. That, that takes into account the, the model's like ability to recreate images. It doesn't take into account the model's ability to generalize, which is also a significant contribution to how latent diffusion models work. It's important that they can generalize because that's how you're able to create images that don't exist. And this method that we've come up with, this, this sort of similarity scoring method, doesn't take into account generality directly anyway. I think that that's a really tough problem. But I think there's a really interesting case to be made to compare the two approaches, the very com computationally intensive one and this one, which is you know similarity-based and empirically just take a look. Like to what extent is this actually true? And in a toy model setting with enough compute, I think that can be done. It's interesting. Yeah. It brings up a couple sets of questions. One, which is like, who's mad about, you know, the way that, the way that you all did it. And I guess mm. a related question is kind of like, what is the purpose of this now? Mm. And what is it in the future? Right? Like if billions of dollars are on the line because artists are getting paid out <laughs> automatically based on the fact that, uh, you know, that, that stable attribution is identifying them as one of the artists who contributed to the work, then I can see like really it needing to be very precise. If it's to draw awareness of this yeah. to show that there's a solution, I can see doing doing this approach. So to you, kind of like, what is the goal today? And then what is the goal for something like this in the future? Uh, I think today the goal is to demonstrate that this is in principle possible. It's a tractable problem that we can make real progress on. And I think the response kind of demonstrates this is something that people sorely want. None of the responses have been like, oh, if this existed, we would never, we wouldn't care about it. All the responses have been, yeah, but this doesn't work or it's not really doing what you say or... I think, I think our biggest objection, and I think this is actually kind of a little bit our fault, is like people, you can upload any image you want into stable attribution. We had thought that because the open source repo for stable diffusion contained the stable diffusion watermark, we would be all right by like detecting it. But we found that like in most publicly available hosted versions of stable diffusion, and probably because a lot of them run on hugging face transformers, that watermark isn't there. So we can't detect it. Hmm. And so what ends up happening is people like upload an image of their cat or scribbles that they did in MS Paint. And then it, it's on our website with that framing of this AI generated image from these source images. That's probably, that, that could have probably been handled better. We do, we do like warn people, but there's a limited amount to what we can do, I feel. Like if I upload my MS Paint, will it find the things that are kind of like most similar to my MS Paint or that it like will... contributed to it? So it would it will do like the full model round trip. It, when it does a full round trip, it would be like if stable diffusion had generated this image paint image. Yes, yeah. here's, here's here's whatever, right? Um, the Which is also is, is kind like, of kind of interesting. Like you know, it, it, it yeah, again, it's like a copy on the website issue, and yeah, I think it's also a lot less stable. Like one of the things with like this image inversion thing is it works for generated images. I think it works. I haven't actually really looked into this. I need to, uh, if we continue research in this direction, if you stick your MS Paint uh, image in, and then we do the, the thing where we generate a caption and then you know, invert it and then run diffusion forward, you probably, I want to say you probably won't get the same MS Paint image back. Interesting empirical experiment to do. Someone should do it. Um, someone with access to cheap compute ought to give that a shot uh, and see what kind of results you get. Um, but it's trying. Like the algorithm, the algorithm will always try. It will always try. It, we can't like we love can't that not make algorithm. it try. <laughs> we'll it, always it's try. It's also amazing to me. Like the watermark is one thing, but that, the, like the thing that the model produces will be the same kind of like 
file format and put together. I mean, I guess it's all just pixels in the end, but like mm. that they can't tell if this is AI generated or or not AI generated. There's research ongoing around this right now about detecting watermarks uh, or detecting like common artifacts in generated images. I think it would be really nice if people just put watermarks in their in their hosted services. You can't stop people taking them out of like the open source repo, but if you have a hosted service, you might as well put a watermark in it and tell people what the watermark is. So there, there, there's like work effort out there to assign provenance to models. So someone DM me a really interesting paper. I haven't dug into it yet about there. It's actually possible apparently, or some researchers claim to assign provenance to like know what model this came from. So I'd be interested in, in looking at that. I think there's another really interesting thing happened recently where I don't know if you saw this, um, Scott Aronson, who's been working at OpenAI for the last little while. And there was actually some research which preempted them a little bit, which basically can like determine whether or not text is ChatGPT generated or GPT generated. Yeah. And there might be a similar information theoretic approach here as well. Although we haven't thought about that in much depth. I think like our, our goal here really was attribution. I guess then the, yeah, the second part of the question is, is kind of just who, who gets upset that this is yeah. that this is off and who, who gets mad and what are the different so sides of the debate here? Yeah, there's, there's like three, probably about three sides of the debate. The first side is people who basically either don't want to believe or can't believe that this is possible. So they claim that the results are fake or that they don't make sense instead of just kind of accepting in good faith that this has limitations and let's discuss those limitations. We can improve upon them. There are groups of people who worry about what impact this will have legally, which is really interesting. Uh, it's kind of like the future that I want to avoid and the future that I think most people want to avoid is like Disney web crawling the entire web for images and being like, nope, that's generated using our IP. You need to take it down, whether or not it's actually yeah. generated using their IP. One of the reasons that we haven't actually opened the code is so that people don't do that. Um, we're, we're already like, we're already facing things like people using this to claim that an artist's work was AI generated, for example. And that's, you know, we definitely want to avoid that. It's not something we want. Seeing what the response would be in the wild was another reason for launching early, as opposed to like waiting until all the research was finally finished. So there's people, you know, people are mad. And then there are people who attack the project on its technical merits. Again, I think we made engineering trade-offs. I don't think like we're definitely not out to deceive anybody. I've been very upfront about how this is supposed to work and how it works. But, you know, people have, I think, expected us to launch only the most perfect version when the reality is this will take a lot of research to get right. But I think it's important enough to do that research and doing research in this direction is likely to improve our understanding of, of the training process, of machine learning models, how they perform with respect to the training data. So. I'm picturing this group as kind of like the Hacker News commentary. Or... Oh, I haven't actually read the Hacker News thread. We were number one for roughly 24 hours, I think, uh, which is great. Great response. People care. Yeah. Wait, how many people have so been thing, using it? We had 52,000 uniques, I think. I think people have uploaded like probably 12,000 images. Wow. Haven't gone through all of them. Um, I'm expecting to see pretty bad stuff in there. So I haven't really sat down and looked at what's gone through. I've been focused more on like, clearing up a lot of the misconceptions here. This is an experiment that I think in the short term we'll continue to run and then we'll decide what we want to do with it based on the response. And then we'll see what, if any of it, we want to you know, make open uh, for other people to use. Uh, people have asked us for an API. 
not sure we want to do that yet. We'll see. Because, um, of course, like this topic is controversial, this, this concurrent lawsuits. One thing we did do, though, which I really want to emphasize, is we spent the, like a couple of weeks before launch, uh, when it was clear that we were going to do this, talking to especially creatives and artists and, and getting their perspective on, on like what the real problem was and whether this tool was an approach that suited them. And the response there was positive, and that's another thing which pushed us to launch earlier rather than later. And it's actually kind of their, interesting. Yeah, what was their but, feedback? Yeah, I mean, uh, they thought it was great. Um, the kind of little intro animation you get at the start was based on feedback from artists or creatives who said like, listen, a lot of people don't actually even know how this works or anything about it at all yet. So you need to educate a little bit. And so we had that graphic. Um, and I think, yeah, like they thought, okay, this is something that is a positive step forward. And then we sort of talked about like the good versions of the future that this could help build. Uh, and that's kind of another reason why we built this is there's the bad version where, you know, copyright law is strengthened. Disney has d decides that every single character anyone might ever want to draw is actually a derivative work of a Disney character and has these little scrapers that DMCA every image on the web, kind of like certain people have for YouTube. Don't want that at all. And we understand that people are threatened by that. But on the other perspective is like something like attribution can align incentives between the people who are actually creating the data and the point at which it's being like used to generate images. So I think you you actually called this out. You said this this changes this changes these things into a distribution engine. Different, yeah, like, I, you know. I think it's fast. I mean, like that is that's a weird kind of futury one, I would imagine. But like, mm. if there's somebody who is like, it's hard to even say their work is popular, right? But like that enough people are asking for things similar to the kind of work that they do, but they're kind of obscure and posting in random places on the internet, they can actually be discovered. I think that's a really yeah. fascinating kind of potential outcome of this. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? One of the things that we found from the data set re recreation papers is outliers also matter a lot. Outliers are points that the model tends to be good at like recreating because that's the only thing it knows in that part of latent space. So it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to get this stuff. And that seems to override generality in the same way that weighting does, which is very interesting. Um, but yeah, that's like fascinating. as a search I, I, engine. Yeah, in the in a post a couple of weeks ago on differentiation, like essentially part of my argument was like, you kind of just have to be as weird as humanly possible and like as different as humanly possible <laughs> on things to stand out or else one, the AI can just like recreate average well, but you're also just like a more interesting input to the models if you're more hmm. different than anybody else. Yeah, there's, there's a few possible futures. So the search engine future, which you're talking about, I think is actually really cool. Uh, and the model for this kind of already exists. Uh, when Dolly 2 dropped, Sam Altman, generated a pair of sneakers and then he found somebody to make the sneakers and now he occasionally wears the sneakers. And then, you know, the thing that we do is we find a lot of Etsy links. We find a lot of Shopify links. And it's like, well, cool. Imagine if this, like you iteratively created a design that you liked and then we showed you who could do that for you. That sounds pretty great. Or like who's making similar things with aesthetic choices that you might like. Or like you mentioned, discovering people. So besides the like compensation part of this, discoverability search. There's also a decentralization aspect to this as well. If you can do like provenance and ownership after attribution, for example, like one possible future is instead of having like big companies owning their, their generative models for the images they have rights to, and then like fighting each other. Instead, there could be a model trained on a, you know, let's say 
Creative Commons publicly available uh, or even donated data set. And that would be a very bland vanilla type of model, probably. And then, you know, through fine tuning, everybody could have their own generative model based on their art. It's like, okay, you like my art? Well, here's my generative model, create more of it. Do it, remix my art for me. And then you can imagine like artists algorithmically collaborating even in ways that you could say like, okay, well, I like this artist style and I like this artist style. I'll like bring them together and it's gonna create new images. And then we have attribution back to it. So everybody in this chain, everybody in this chain is like working all towards the same objective. One other thing that I really wanna bring up here or note is people say, oh, well, human artists go out and look at a lot of images and they don't attribute their inspiration I don't know, I think a lot of artists do attribute their inspiration to like, yeah, here are my favorite illustrators and painters. Um, you know, people, people talk about that all the time. But besides that, it's like, it's an age old question. It's, it's a question as old as at least the industrial revolution. Who owns the product of labor, the, the owner of the machine or the people who put in the work? Um, I think this allows us to actually ask that question properly instead of just pretending there's not a problem here. I mean, like the technical piece of this is is obviously compelling and something that people are debating in a library but like the yeah. philosophical piece of it is is equally as interesting and having this option yeah. out there to at least begin that seems like a good thing to me I'm, I'm, i like the the versions of the future that you're talking about here like how much needs to happen or like how much does the the cost of GPUs need to come down or do they need to get mm. more accessible or whatever like to get to mm. a version of the future where you'd feel confident enough having like an automated system doing a lot of yeah. this. So either either like GPU cost and compute comes down significantly for us to be able to do this at like retraining scale every single time, or we do research that allows us to approximate what we would get with that approach uh, in a much less computationally intensive way. Uh, and I'm bullish on that second one. I think demand for GPUs are, are, is only gonna rise in coming years and it's probably gonna outstrip you know, supply for, for a while. At least that's my gut instinct here. But other approaches, computationally efficient approaches, might be able to approximate that sufficiently well. And again, I got to stress this part. The notion of optimality is like ultimately under a human chosen measure. Like it's optimal yeah. in some human chosen sense. There is no objective attribution function, right? There is just some function that we perhaps could all agree or most of us could agree is sufficiently fair in the way that it determines attribution. And then we can automatically apply that function instead of having humans with subjective impressions, who, which might change also according to who they might be friends with doing it for us, right? Like expert opinion, is this a derivative work or not? And, and, and even you know, be, being able to describe under this measure, this, this work is a derivative of this to this degree is a lever, it's a tool we can use. Technology is a tool, it doesn't have its own objective reality. It doesn't have its own like will, or it can't decide for us what we think is right or wrong. Um, yeah, close to saying it doesn't have its own will. So it doesn't have its own will yet, yeah. but yeah, it can't, can't decide. Well, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is like everything has a distance to everything I would imagine in the model. There's some things that are just like completely left out and you know had no contribution at all mm. or do you have to just pick a cutoff point at some time or else you know in this future where there's yeah. stable coins being sent you're sending like point oh 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 one cents to an artist each time yeah i think like that threshold would have to be determined 
uh, or you could do it a little bit more probabilistically, which is my preferred approach where you, you know, computer probability distribution, you say, okay, well, this is in like the 10th percentile probably, but this one is like in the 91st percentile over the entire thing. So that's an actually interesting point, right? Some of the objections that I've had to one vision of the future where it's like you get paid, you know, a fraction of the revenue of a generated image is that Spotify does this. And Spotify, for example, or, you know, any music service, Spotify, the income that artists make on it is like heavily Pareto distributed. Like the top 1% of artists make 99% of the income, right? And then there's this long tail. But the difference between this and Spotify is exactly what you just described. Everything contributes to everything, which means in some sense, the income distribution ought to be far more, like it should have a lower Gini coefficient, basically. It should be flatter. And that's interesting because then it's like, if these models work better, suddenly everyone's income scales, it raises up. And that's, that's really interesting. I don't think that's, I think that's actually something fundamentally different here. And it's the ability that's so, to like- that's so interesting, right? Yeah, because it's not people saying like, we love Taylor Swift and then Taylor Swift getting the marketing dollars behind her. And whatever. it's just you asking for an image that you want and the model going and picking the best, you know, the yeah. images that, that make the most sense to- yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that piece. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I just, just to make sure, because someone's going to jump on me saying this, <laughs> the model is not doing collaging. It's not cutting and pasting stuff together, yeah. but it is in some sense reproducing information in its training data. That's the only place information to, for the model to use can come from. It doesn't come from the external world for now. I think that may change very soon. Uh, I've been seeing some very interesting stuff happening. But yeah, like this, this possible better outcome, even from that perspective. But I'm, I'm sure people will find ways to sort of optimize that system in unexpected ways as well. You know, look, human economic activity is the real paperclip maximizer. We already have these, <laughs> right? right? I mean, like every TikTok video ends up, ends up going to the same thing. Every, you know, Spotify song is now shorter than old songs because that, you know, the YouTube videos go to the same length. I'm sure people will figure out a way to, to yeah. hack the system as well. But you're right. It probably isn't even as, as skewed a distribution in... It'll be, it would be interesting to try to your next question, which was like, how long do I think this will take to get right? I don't know, a while. Um, I doubt, like, certainly I wouldn't put huge confidence behind using our current algorithm directly, although because attribution is a human defined thing, you can just say, this is how we're attributing work in the training set. Take it or leave it, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with doing that because there's, again, it's like, what is, you know, what is correct attribution? There is, in, in, in some sense, an optimal approach here, which is really like how much does, the in, does one image influence the output of the training set? But you can also just say, yeah, this is how we're going to assign credit in our model. Right? It's, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's better than nothing. We have, to, we have to find some way to do it. This is like reasonably principled. We might as well adopt it for now. It doesn't have to be the end all, be all and end all for the entire future. Where do you think the money that like assuming, and, and I know that there are different reasons besides economic, but just going down that, mm. that thread a little bit, where does the money that ultimately pays the artists who get attribution mm. come from? Is that games and movies and people paying for me? Like, is there going to yes. be a pot of money here for, for people to get paid out from? Well, we've seen that these models have commercial applications. I'm sure as they improve, they'll have even more commercial applications. And so people will pay for them because they're economically valuable. And then the, you know, and then, you know, from that revenue, you can pay your contributors. And I think that's like, it's really interesting because if we end up in a world where everyone who creates new images that people enjoy absolutely hates and will not contribute to generative AI, 
then the models are going to suck forever. Right. Like, I think this is actually happening with, with like Lensa where like there was this craze for AI avatars. It was really cool, but now it's like, it's a little bit dated already because memes cycle very quickly. Yeah. Right. We talked about that last time. Um, memes cycle very quickly. And so the like corpus that you're, that you're like ingesting into your models and keeping them fresh and actually relevant to what's going on. And, you know, there's new world events. So you need to take all that into account. You want people to be aligned. You want people to want to contribute their imagery. And so like having a way forward where people want to do that is, is probably like a good future, a better future than one where these two things are at odds. And, you know, if, if people are like coerced one way or another, right. If there's decisions like, Oh yeah, you have no right to like whatever you post on the web. If it's, if it's going into a generative model, well, people are probably going to stop posting stuff on the web so much. On the other hand, if you have like this heavily coercive IP regime, which is like Disney's, evil scraper spider robots telling you that your thing is a derivative work because it was generated by this model, blah, 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 I'll take it down. Both of those really suck. Um, the thing to do is like work on this problem, at least, at least in my opinion. I, so I guess to, to kind of end this, I mean, we've talked about this before you run a company Chroma with Jeff and, and I'm an investor in the company. Um, and I guess with my investor hat on, like one question is, how much longer are you working on this? Kind of like what's next for it? How much time does it take? How related to Chroma is this? Is, just, is this just like a, your contribution to the world? Like how do you think all this fits together? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. The core technology for this existing stable attribution algorithm is based on core Chroma tech. This is stuff that we've been building out since we founded the company. And that's why we were able to re develop it relatively quickly and be able to like, do the algorithms that we needed to do to like recompute the latent space, et cetera. We had that basically ready to go and we had the necessary experience to do it. So we did it. The timeline was able to be very short for that reason. Also, we launched it basically out of like, your other question is like why, why we did this. And yeah. I think a big part of it was like, okay, solving this problem requires technology that is well within Chroma's remit. So not only is it based on software we've already written, it's based on kind of our perspective on machine learning, which is you can understand, or you know, you can you can work to understand models uh, based on their training data. And so this is like an obvious thing for us to do from that perspective. We didn't necessarily have an idea about how to commercialize this immediately, but we felt that given where things were going, uh, it was a good idea to launch it when we did. So. Yeah. So like we did it because partly because we could, and we were right place, right time. Uh, and partly because it's, you know, it's, it's a demonstration of the things that we're thinking about partly because I think it's like important to show people that you can actually work to solve these problems instead of just ignoring them or, or, or assuming they'll never go away. So. Yeah. And I mean, I guess also you know, to the points that you were making about the different ways that this can go, mm. it is certainly in Chrome's long-term interest to make sure that it goes in a way that is not just all lawsuits or all people keeping their content offline. Like the more yeah. models there are out there and the more usage there is, the more opportunity there is for the company as well. So it's, it's a cool yeah. way to contribute and, and also kind of shape your long-term future. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we're, we're time boxing. This is an experiment. I think gauging the reaction seeing like what parts of the tech work and which don't all of that is valuable information for us for the future. Um, and again, like, Depending on the reaction, depending on what people seem to want to do with it, we'll, we'll open source it or not. We'll see.
I've had a lot of fun playing with it. It's been very cool to kind of like see the the progress of the different versions and, and get to use it now. If you need any help at all dealing with uh, the emotional <laughs> side of getting trolled on the internet, I got you. I've, I've had a lot of experience oh, there, fine. but I think that, you know, I think it, it's, it's a good sign that there's both you know, kind of strong, positive and uh, negative reactions. It means that you're in the middle of something important yeah. right now. And and it's been cool to watch also. You're just kind of explaining the technical pieces behind it. And we'll link to the Twitter thread. And I'm sure we probably throw it up uh, in, in the video at some point, but we'll link to that. We'll link to the papers that, that you kind of referenced. And so it's a good learning moment, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's been really good. We, we got to flex a bunch of infrastructure muscle, which we wouldn't otherwise necessarily have at this stage yet. So like, we're very familiar with like cloud provisioning this kind of service now, uh, for example, this is like super relevant to what we're doing next. You got, you got that in our investor update. So I feel, I feel good that we did this basically. I feel like it was not like it was, it was still, it, it was in the direction that we wanted to be going as Chroma. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Anton. Cool. I think next time I'd love to talk more about embeddings. I think we just got, on right after Jeff had sent a tweet about people not understanding embeddings. So I think perfect timing to, <laughs> to cover those. Um, so if there's a paper that what you What is he posting? What is he posting? Jeff, Jeff is like very online, but in a way that I'm not. And so everything that he posts is like extremely cryptic and you have to like, un <laughs> you have to like peel his tweets sometimes, whereas mine are like very straightforward. I found it. Um, he is posting a manifesto. That's the first I'm hearing of this. <laughs> I thought he said he wasn't going to post the manifesto. He was just going to post that little cryptic Oh, I will avoid on. posting a giant Twitter thread. All right, great. Yeah. All right. Perfect. All right. So next time, next time we'll do embeddings. If there's a paper I should read, let me know and, and we'll share it with everybody. Cool. So let's do it. All right. Good luck out there, Anton. Thank chat. you. Thanks, Pecky. Bye-bye.